I'm David Moskoff. Welcome to Open to Debate. This is the first in a three-episode series on cities in Canada. In 1911, 45% of people lived in cities in this country. By 2021, that number had risen to 82% and growing. The growth of cities in Canada has been painful. Today, they face significant challenges, including housing policy, policing, and public transit. And yet they get far less attention than other orders of government, and they exist under the thumb of provinces. To try to understand what this means for residents, we ask, what is the state of cities in Canada? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Andrea Reimer, Principal at Tawa Strategies, Adjunct Professor of Practice at the University of British Columbia School of Public Policy and Global Affairs, and former three-term Vancouver City Councillor. Let's start with a bit of a paradox. Cities in Canada tend to get less media coverage and lower voter turnout than provinces or the federal government, and yet cities shape the lives of millions of Canadians, the vast majority of Canadians, and growing in a whole ton of day-to-day ways. Housing policy, policing, roads, other infrastructure, plenty more. Uh, Why do you think it is that people are a bit tuned out of city governance and politics? Yeah, well, I think we're brought up from an early age to not care about city government and city politics. I think um, in Canada and the U.S., we have a long history, which comes from our founding times, right? So you had, um, at the time, the Constitution Act was, or um, Canada, the Confederation happened. You had 15, 1-5% of people living in cities. And your big challenge was, how are you going to govern the 85% living in rural areas? Um, So sort of embedded in our DNA is this idea. Um, And yet the reality now is more than 90% of Canadians live in urban areas. um, And yet our whole structure is set up to focus on national governments and then provinces, subnational governments, um, which was a great structure 150 some odd years ago, but doesn't make a ton of sense now. Okay, well, I want to I want to build on that with this, the specific question of the Federation. I mean, cities are important. We're going to spend the episode and the next two episodes after this one talking about that. They're growing in importance. That's not going to change. This is a global trend. Uh, as you mentioned, where the vast number of folks live in in cities or you know census metropolitan areas in this country. And yet they remain constitutionally under the thumb of the provinces, right? They're quote unquote, creatures of the provinces, as we say. Uh, you know, how do you see cities managing the fact that they've got growing importance? growing in responsibilities, and yet they're stuck sort of in a constitutional limbo or being bullied around, in the case of Ontario in some cases, by the provinces, or limited by the provinces, as is the case, for instance, in perhaps in, in British Columbia around certain issues, uh, for in, perhaps uh, drug policy, for, for example. Yeah, well, I mean, we're going to keep failing um, as a nation of urban areas, right, if we don't give cities the tools that they need to manage the current challenges that they're facing. So, David, if I gave you, if I said, look, you can go anywhere you want to go in the world, um, and I will give you all of the transportation options that were available to people alive in the late 1880s. And you're like, okay, yeah, well, you just made it almost impossible for me to go anywhere. Maybe I can take a horse ride or there's a buggy or a train I can take, but I can't, you know, it's a challenging, long, arduous journey. That is exactly the experience that cities have to deal with every day because they are handed a set of legislative tools 
um, a very blunt what, a knife of property taxes as their only fiscal um, tool, so the only way that they can pay for anything. Um, and then they're asked to solve I mean, pandemics and climate crises and housing affordability and income inequality. And so all of these huge 21st century issues are not up to the task of the imagination of the people that wrote these documents in the 1880s. So that's where you see failure uh, all over the streets of cities across the country um, and cities increasingly frustrated with their inability to deal with it. Do you think there'll ever be a point at which in this country we, we give cities a sort of constitutional status beyond being creatures of the province? Oh, wow. Like we do not have a great history um, <laughs> as a country on these no. constitutional no. debates. But and it's not getting I better. Would, no, no. I think it's an even harder time. But I think like as you noted, although the Constitution is blind to cities, so they don't exist and don't have the legal authorities that I mean, I, when I was elected to city council, people would say to me, why aren't you doing what Vienna's doing? Or why aren't you doing what Stockholm's doing on housing, on transportation, on climate mitigation? Um, and I was like, okay, that's a really good question. Why aren't we? And then I find out, you know, after beating myself up for quite a while about how we were underperforming as a city, that actually this Vienna, let's take them as an example, they're a state. They have all the powers of a state in Austria. They raise way more money than the city of Vancouver. They can legislate things around housing and around climate that the city of Vancouver, city of Toronto, city of Montreal could never dream of doing within the Canadian context. Um, and so the idea of being a creature of the province means that this doesn't need to be a constitutional question. It could simply be a negotiation and a discussion between provinces and the cities that are in those provinces. And that's what, and there's those of us who are excited about the concept of cities reform and really focused on giving cities the money and the respect and the power that they need to be able to meet 21st century problems. That's where I think the first wave of change is going to happen. I want to, I want to dig into that specifically around a couple of issues. I mean, it's hard to choose because there's a handful that stand out as particularly interesting. I'm going to choose housing okay. because it's, a, as you may know, it is in the news. <laughs> it, is, it is on the radar <laughs> and in the news, but, but sort of across the country. I mean, this is part of the reason it's fascinating is that it is an issue from, from, from coast to coast to coast. I mean, it, it really is something that unites, um, you know, folks around the country and you may have a, an issue on housing in Vancouver. Now you've got an issue in Toronto. Now it's Hamilton. Now it's Ottawa. Now it's Montreal. Now it's Atlanta, Canada. And it keeps growing. That pressure keeps growing. I grew up in Peterborough. I was recently talking to some folks and like, well, the, the, the price of housing in Peterborough is through the roof. If you had told me 20 years ago, like Peterborough was going to be, you know, in a housing crunch, I would say, in what world are you living in? And yet here we are. So I'm wondering how that that need to negotiate with with the province and to some extent with the federal government as well, and, and with the three of them, uh, shapes housing policy. Because people at home say, why can't, why can nobody fix this? And yet it seems to be, uh, in, at least in part, a bit of a coordination issue among orders of government. Yeah, well, I, I'm told by the people that I've worked with internationally on issues like housing and climate change, uh, climate action, is that Canada is second and maybe even tied with Belgium for complexity of constitution, like the constitutional powers as they're divided out between the, the national government, subnational or provincial government and cities. 
in British Columbia, we have regional governments as a layer in that. And of course, we're not even yet talking about indigenous governments, which mm -hmm. is a whole other complex and something Belgium, as I understand, doesn't have to deal with. So um, when you're thinking about that, and then you add in this 1880s legal framework that's completely inadequate, um, the amount of moving gears here, it's like that Star Trek three-dimensional chess game, right? And did we ever see anyone win in those games in Star Trek? We did not, because I actually don't think it's winnable, right? And so the people looking for housing solutions, climate solutions, they are totally right in their frustration, but so are the governments, because to get in British Columbia, you need four levels of government to align in order to get something moving forward, local, regional, uh, provincial and then national, and the duty to work with Indigenous communities is also very high. And there's, I can't think of any area in this country that that wouldn't also be true. And I mean, we had the added complexity in British Columbia of a no or very few historical treaties. So that creates an even more live issue around um, how you're dealing with issues of land and land use. Oh, I, I want to get into decolonization and, and indigenous politics in a couple of minutes. First, I want to talk a little bit about transit. I mean, is it is it any easier with transit or is that just a copy of of the challenges with with housing? I mean, I this isn't I'm going to say this right now. This isn't a fair comparison and I'm not making it as a comparison. It's more of a wish list. But when I lived in in South Korea, which has its own political problems, um, you know, including fairly heavy-handed governments and strike-busting governments and so on and so forth, corruption. But, you know, I lived just outside of Seoul in 2008. 13 metro lines. A lot of people, dense, a great density, but 13 metro lines that would stretch hundreds of kilometers across the Gyeonggi-do. So I lived in a small city of 1.5 million people outside of Seoul. But, you know, I could get to Seoul. I could get across Seoul. I could tap a card onto one bus, travel to rail, hop rail, travel on a prorated rate into Seoul, 2008. I then moved to Vancouver around the same time, just after I finished, and uh, it was a very different experience. Now, I wonder to what extent the, the problems that we have at this city level on transit, public transit, are a, a function of government coordination problems. And what degree they're a function of, of how we as cities think about transit? I mean, do are we even mentally there where where Seoul was, you know, 20 years ago, or Tokyo was 20 years ago, where Europe's been for decades, or, or what, what's holding us back on transit? Yeah, I think there's a few a few considerations. So, I mean, housing by and large, our expectation is that the market will provide, right? And I, I don't mean you, David, and Andrea might have that expectation, but as a society for since our founding, the basic idea was the market will provide you with housing in some way, shape, or form. Um, transit from its inception, the idea is that the government will provide you an opportunity uh, either through roads, uh, if you're a car driver or a sidewalk, if you're a pedestrian, or through public transit, if you need to go a little further than one of those things or don't have access to a private automobile. The transit always had an expectation of public involvement. And so I think in that respect, it's better off because you have these public transit agencies whose job it is to provide this public service for people. Whereas housing is a real mixed bag across the country. And I think in general, the expectation or assumption is that if you need 
the government to provide you with housing, something's gone wrong in your life, as opposed to a sidebar. <laughs> Nobody thinks your life is like failing somehow if you need government to pay for a road or a sidewalk or a subway or whatever these things are. So that um, helps out a lot. I think though, like as we've been discussing, nobody really has their hand on the wheel, so to speak, in the transit discussion. So you've got um, federal government who has the, the funding capacity to pay for large-scale infrastructure projects. You can't do that off property tax. If the only way to pay for transportation is to jack everyone's housing costs up beyond a reasonable matter, then you functionally can't pay for transportation. Um, the province also has a good fiscal capacity to do that. So they have a range of taxes available to them that they can use. Um, but then it's actually at the operational level, it's the cities and in a, a region like Vancouver, many cities that have to come together and agree on how they're actually going to fund this through a range of fares, maybe fuel tax. Again, federal government's now involved. Our regional government has to approve those allocations. So if I'm a user... And I want a bus stop at my house. Who am I even going to go talk to about that, right? It's a very complex governance system that tries to deal with legitimate issues of no taxation without representation, no representation without taxation, um, and trying to balance all of that off. And yet um, doesn't really meet the needs of a lot of the users of the system across the country. Um, the mayors in most regions of this country don't when voters go to the polls, they don't really understand how their vote is going to translate into transportation decisions, right? Because if they need a bus stop, uh, um, here we have, you know, this incredible situation where we've got 80,000 people coming and going from a university every day um, without a rapid transit line to it. It's probably one of the few places in the world that that's happening. It's the busiest bus route in North America. Um, and yet, if you wanted to vote for someone to do that, you didn't. You don't really have the ability to do it. The mayor can say they're going to do it, but they can't cut the check for that line. The feds can say they're going to do it, but they can't do it without the agreement of the mayor. And then the mayor needs the agreement of all the other mayors around the ongoing operating costs. Um, and that's a complex issue. Would it make sense to have one agency that's vested with that authority and clarity around when I'm voting, who am I voting for to look after it? Absolutely. Um, but we haven't, I mean, we're still struggling with the basic issue of a 150-year-old constitutional framework that is really not the right size for the problems that we're dealing with in the modern world. I have to confess that, I mean, you were talking there about the 99B line in Vancouver. I, I've got to tell you, I, I wrote it for years from along Broadway because I live just off of Broadway. And I miss it so much. I don't miss being crammed up against someone, you know, in 34 degree heat when that would happen in Vancouver from time to time, or in the winter when then, you know, you crank up the heat in the bus and it was just as bad as if it was summer. But I do miss the the energy of that line. But it's true. It 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 was truly maxed out. You got the sense of like you literally can't fit another one of these buses on the road, right? You know, because they back into one another, right? Yeah. And it's it's an incredible thing. And yet, I mean, I should disclose here, I am a member of the TransLink board. So in the complex system that um, governs transit and makes decisions about it in the lower mainland here in British Columbia, there's a board, but there's also a mayor's council. And then we've got a minister 
Um, and then he's got a cabinet and a government, and then there's the federal government. And again, indigenous communities, there's quite a number of them that we're working with and dealing with and a regional government on top of all those other agencies. And all of them have to align together at a time when the public is prepared to see taxes or other things happen in order to pay for these things and change like disruptions on the road. I mean, we're getting the UBC line now, um, mm -hmm. but you know, the big complaint now is about the disruption to traffic <laughs> yeah, patterns sure. during construction. So, which is a legitimate complaint. So trying to get all of these pieces lined up at the right time with all these levels of governments is really the problem. And the only real answer to that is to have a discussion about the root cause. Yes. Well, it's, uh, talking about root causes, I mean, we've mentioned Indigenous peoples a handful of times already. I want to get into this specifically now. Cities across the country are built on Indigenous land including unceded territory, non-treaty territory, some of it treaty territory. So we can't talk about cities without talking about colonialism, past and present, and indigenous peoples. When you look at cities across the country, do you see any substantive colonial or decolonial engagement happening? Do you, you know, it, is the consultation working? Are folks being brought into the inside? I remember talking to, um, you know, Ginger Gosnell Meyer uh, way back, who has said to me, my job is to indigenize the city. Uh, you know, do you see efforts like that happening and uh, are they working? Yeah, I mean, I definitely see efforts like that happening. Working is a more tricky word, right? Because the, you know, on the one side of the scale, you have a couple hundred years of grave injustice and trauma of murders, of death, of suffering at a level that's... Um, I think increasingly well understood by the Canadian public. And on the other side, you have committees, task forces, declarate, you know, so it's hard to equate those two on the scale. And I'm I'm not even sure you could ever balance out that scale. If the the concept of working is, is it creating the space to have a path that can be built together? To a new world where that suffering, where the where the past isn't strangling the ability to have a future, um, and I, I think in that respect, Vancouver has really stood out as a, a national leader. I haven't um, during the pandemic. I mean, it feels like the Rockies got even bigger than they usually do. It's been harder to see into what's happening in the rest of Canada, but um, I know that other cities really over the last decade, in large part in response to Vancouver's lead. Um, started and initiated years of reconciliation. And then from that um, task force or working groups of some kind, I've heard about some really incredible work happening in Edmonton um, that isn't flashy, right? So it's not so public facing, but it's about the DNA of cities, right? And how they make decisions and how you're bringing voices to the table in a way that um, respects them. Because I think this is one of the, the key shift that has needed to happen and is happening is that it's not about inviting Indigenous people into a colonial table, right? It's about figuring out how you get into a space to build the table that's going to work for everybody that's sitting around it. And that's a very challenging discussion. And I think that is starting to happen. City of Vancouver just um, approved quite um, a revolutionary report on what the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People would look like if implemented in the city of Vancouver in spirit and intent of that declaration. I think it's it's a real um a real leading light 
for other cities to be looking at. Although the caution, when I first started doing work on reconciliation, um, one of the things we did when I was on city council is that we um, put forward a motion that we were living on the unceded territory and, you know, that formally acknowledging that Vancouver was unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. And it got a lot of immediate attention nationally. And I had all these cities calling me going, how do I do this? And I'm like, well, you put in, you know, five to 10 years of work to build relationships so that this is a possible next step, right? So again, like UNDRIP task force in Vancouver is amazing, but it's building on had 15 years of really, really challenging um, and important work that created the opportunity to do that. I mean, so that brings such a up such an important broader point, which is policy is in part a function of institutions, right? And 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 institutions that work well produce better policy. Institutions that work poorly produce worse uh, outcomes. The the coordination that we keep coming back to. You know, cannot be understated as an important point for those who followed the occupation of of Ottawa in the winter of last year. That was a great example of how a lack of coordination at such a basic level was effectively weaponized by occupiers who then came and squatted uh, in the in the town uh, downtown for for a month. And uh, I kept thinking at the time, do these folks not? have one another's phone number you know didn't someone think oh these huge trucks are coming down the road they're booking a hotel room for a month uh they're going to park downtown they say maybe the prime minister and the premier and the mayor and the folks in Gatineau and the ncc should come together and have a phone call and maybe have a little team that would meet obviously we now we're learning through the the various committee dealings and inquiries that coordination was an issue <laughs> alongside some other more nefarious problems but to what extent do you think we could set up best practices and norms and institutions that produced consistent good communication across orders of government so that we could have better city governance? Because you know, I think most day-to-day folks would think, well, of course that's something you should be able to do. And yet at, at the level of practice, it's obviously much more difficult in particular because there are political differences and disagreements and personal beefs and, and just limits of, of time and resources, but there's got to be a way to coordinate that better, right? Yeah, I mean, there definitely is. So it's going to seem like a non sequitur, but I will walk us back to where, where you've started us. Um, back in 2009, there was um, the spill, the Deepwater Horizon spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and at the time, tanker traffic through Vancouver's harbor had increased a lot. And so we had a lot of pressure from people being like, I mean, it's hard to believe now that that oil rig um, was the worst thing going on on planet Earth and drawing so many people's attention. But at the time, it was, um, at least for the people um, in North America. And so we held a special council meeting where we called, um, this was the sole subject is what is the safety of our harbor? Could anything like this happen here? Could there be an accident of this nature? Um, and so we called experts from across the different industry um, groups. So um, they're called pilots. They sort of um, pilot the boats. They don't fly planes. They pilot the boats through um, some pretty narrow and challenging parts of the harbor. Um, we talked to shipping companies, we talked to Harbor Mount, we, we talked to a whole bunch of people, ministries, we had people from all the different ministries, the cleanup crews, 
And what we found through doing this um, investigation is that um, there everybody's like, oh, communications plans, communicate. Something happened, we're all over it. Like it's very unlikely something will happen, and if it does, we're all over it. Um, and then when we really started pushing on it, we found out no. <laughs> Actually, nobody really had like there would be no there was no clarity about who would be in charge. And as you know, from whatever disasters you've dealt with in your own life, if no one's in charge, nothing is actually going to happen. Right. Um, and so the sheer fluke of us doing this kind of accidental tabletop exercise um, created an opportunity to create before the disaster happened, which um, it did some years later, there was a fairly large spill in Vancouver's Harbor. Um, it was it was cleaned up very quickly because we'd had those discussions. You know, because you watch government really closely and the environment gets worse. It feels like every day, if not every week on this, people don't have a lot of tolerance for government not being perfect. And so there's zero incentive for governments to have public discussions about all the ways they're imperfect, right? So this kind of idea of a tabletop exercise becomes almost impossible to get people to buy into. But if you don't, if you're not able to have an environment where you can talk these things through and figure out where the problems may be, you will absolutely end up in an inquiry learning about where these problems were. What gets me about that is is you end up in these these moments where these, this stuff is deconstructed after the fact, and in some cases you take away the lessons, but in some cases you simply don't. And I, you know, as you were telling the story of of the tabletop exercise or tabletop exercise, I was thinking of SARS the first time in Toronto or Ontario, but particularly in Toronto in the early two thousands. And I talked to some doctors during the pandemic who lived through that and said, okay, well, what happened then? They said, well, we sat down afterwards and we talked about what went wrong and we made a plan. And I said, okay, well, what happened to the plan? Because it didn't seem to be in place when the pandemic hit this time around. They said, well, we just ignored it. <laughs> wow. Because, you know, because... No, nobody uh, was maintaining the it. Nobody had taken charge of it, as as you mentioned. No one was in charge here, and that's a problem. Also, you know, you don't get credit for something not happening. You don't get credit for averting a, a crisis. And people were well, we're not going to pay to have warehouses full of of you know uh, personal protective equipment. That's expensive. We're not going to sink all this money into something that might happen. And yet it seems to me that one of the things we need to do at the at the community level, at the at the level of the resident or the voter, is get them to be a little more comfortable with the fact that governments are imperfect. We need to have these public conversations and we need to do investments now so that we can prepare and react to things when, when they do happen. I mean, is there is that utterly utopian? Do you think there's any chance we can convince people that we should put that work in? No, I, d I don't think it's utopian at all, but I think it's a fairly long road from where we're at, right? So I, I think it's a great goal. But then there's also this question of gap analysis, what happens between now and then. I think one of the things that's startled me the most about the, you know, I, I worked for many years in activism, um, and particularly um, uh, protecting biodiversity. So the kind of proverbial war in the woods in BC. Um, and in, in forestry debates here, generally speaking, 
everybody, including industry, understood that the goal was to get to a place of protecting old growth and no clear cuts. The real discussion was always about the gap analysis. How will we get there? All of the debates were about that. What amazes me about the world when I left that world and got into sort of broader um, social issues, economic issues, political issues, the debate is always about the next step. Like nobody's even articulating where they want to go or they are articulating it, but can articulate a gap analysis, right? And I think just our general level of literacy about how to have a conversation and a dialogue, how to formulate policy. It's one of the regions I teach about power now and power literacy. Like how does power work? How do, how do, like, how do you take the power you have and use it effectively within power structures, right? And having a goal would be the number one piece of advice that I would give people, a clear goal that you understand and can explain to someone else. Um, and then, you know, it gets more complex about how to navigate the power structures, but gap analysis is a really key thing. You can't go to the public and say, I want you to be literate about democracy and government and what municipal governments do and the solutions you want and how to get there. But I think you could say that it would be good to live in a society where that existed. And then what's the next step that's going to get us to, you know, on that pathway there. I think that brings us back to, to the opening question, which is the paradox question. I think part of the answer there is bringing people into, into structures of governance as participants in, in self-determination, right? I mean, one of my critiques of liberal democracy in general is we don't really expect much from people we don't provide them with the, the opportunity to give much either. You know, politicians in many cases uh, don't want, quite frankly, citizens in the way. Some do to their credit, but a lot of times it's, well, you know, that's the kind of friction we can't deal with. And we don't give a lot of opportunity for, for folks to get involved. And, you know, I think the more that people do get involved, the more they can start to understand the need for these sorts of approaches to, to issues and, and the institutions to support that. But we just sort of don't do it. Which leads me to this question of, uh, you know, do you think that we're moving towards or, or could be conceivably moving towards something like that? Or you know, have things become worse in the last several years? Because I'm looking at the state of, of our politics, at the state of debate, at the state of our institutions, and the growing challenges we have, not the least of which is climate change, probably the greatest of which is climate change, and think to myself, this doesn't look better than you know 10 years ago or 2008 10 when i moved to vancouver i mean it, it seems or 2018 when i moved to ottawa it seems like it's worse at the worst possible time and i would love to be disabused of that notion i mean because you know i would love someone like you who has been in the thick of it for a very long time and who knows a lot of this to say to me oh no no, no don't worry there's some good things happening um so i'm very much hoping you can do that <laughs> no pressure but you know Okay, well, Help me out here. I have to caveat this because I'd hate for you to Google this and find it out later that I have definitely been described as dangerously optimistic by people. So I, I come oh, from perfect. the school of optimism. But I also, I mean, you've followed me. We know each other well enough to know I'm also pretty rigorous in data. Like I like data. I like logic. I like to see the construct of something. Because uh, I also am a realist. I, I've had a life that requires me to be very realistic about evaluating um, to where what's going on around me um, for my own safety at one point and now for lots of people's safety in a variety of different roles that I play. 
Uh, and I would say, like, I think there's a ton of reason for optimism around democratic engagement. I think I think where the breakdown comes is that you've got like this huge mass. I mean, these hundred thousand people marches we were having in late 2019 for climate in Canada, like not like around the world. We're talking in the millions in some countries. Um, most of the people in those crowds, like the average age was well below the average age of an elected official, um, of a voter for that matter, right? And so to me, the big issue right now, I mean, our, our times are very characterized by division. And to me, that's one of the divisions is that you've got this huge mass of people under 35, under 40, who are incredibly engaged in issues and policy and wanting things to change. Then you've got a smaller but very committed group um, of older, wealthier, whiter, homeowning people who are very um, committed to the status quo, right? And so how do you, like, what's the gap analysis here, right? How do you get this massive group of people who are so activated into the structures that that much smaller group are in and make them effective in those structures, right? Because I don't think it's one point of view or the other. The goal here is to get both points of view and everyone in the middle in a room so that they can have an effective dialogue about the best pathway forward. And what gets me is that, you know, you would think that cities would be exactly where you could make something like that happen because it is, I mean, there's lots of people live in cities. Some cities have have millions of people, but, but it is your community. It is hyper local. And, you know, I think about sort of analyses of, of imagined communities to borrow a line from Benedict Anderson. And, you know, by the time you get to the level of the nation state, you really have to do a lot of work to construct on us. You know, what is a Canadian? What is an American? What is a Spaniard? What is a Korean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You've got, there's a lot of work being done to create communities along ethnic lines, along, you know, nationalist lines that are institution-based or symbols, you know, hockey, for instance, to use a trite example here. Um, but, you know, at the, at the local level, you you are much closer to your government and you're much closer to your community. You'd think, you know, cities would be where this this work is is best done, Right because it is so close. And I, and I keep coming back to the first question, the paradox question, because it eludes me that you know cities are where we live. You think this is where people would be in the thick of it all the time, but they're not. So I want to close out on this question. You know what what do you think it is about our politics and our cities that alienate a certain segment of the population? And I want to use that word carefully, alienate, not, People aren't apathetic. You know, I like to say I've never met an apathetic person in my life. I've never once met a person who I said to, do you care about politics? They might say no. I say, okay, well, do you care about roads, schools, climate, policing, housing, taxes? And they're like, well, of course I care about all those things. So you care about politics. But folks get alienated from the system. And I'm I'm curious why you think folks at the local level are alienated and how we might do that work to bring them back in. Because I do think that's central to solving a lot of these problems. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that there's a simple answer, which is give cities the power, respect and money they need to be able to meet when you bring people in to be able to meet the things they want you to deal with when they're in there. Right. So I speak as someone who spent 10 years in government, incredibly committed to this at the local level. Um, we moved consultation from a few thousand people a year up 
to 100,000 people a year across a huge array of issues from climate to housing to childcare to reconciliation to businesses, jobs, economy, transit, like you name it. And of the long list, I mean, people were so desperate to talk to someone about their problems. And when they, they saw that someone really wanted to talk to them, no matter what the color of their skin was, what age they were, whether they owned or rented or something in between or something else. Um, and then you're like, well, we actually can't do those things. And we can't do those things. And we can't do these other things. And when they see provinces treating cities with disrespect, and they're hearing from cities who want to talk to them, but we can't do that. What other option do you like, what other conclusion would you come to than I don't respect this level of government either, right? So at a bare minimum, starting with respect and understanding um, from provinces, I, I think it's not going to translate well into a podcast, but hopefully I can visually describe it. My experience with governments is they all see at their own eye level. Um, and then they pay attention to anything that could bash them on the head. So if you're a federal government, you only see federal governments. Although, I mean, as Ford is showing us right now, the provinces can bash the federal government on the head once in a while. Um, and so, you know, they're kind of paying attention to provinces, but they don't see cities at all at the federal government level. The provinces kind of don't pay any attention to cities until something can bash them on the head. Cities they are constantly looking out for stuff falling from the sky because it is happening all day long, every day. And until provincial governments really understand the pressures that exist for a level of government that as we've both been talking about, the front door is always open. You are constantly available to your, um, to, to your constituents. Um, and, and if you're not, you've got someone pushing you to make yourself more available. You have to give them respect. And then from that would flow thinking about the lack of power and the lack of money they have to be able to do what it is that they need to do. And I, I think if you could do those things, local governments, as we see in Europe, um, where governments do have more power, money, and I would say more respect than they do here um, from their national governments. I mean, you can imagine with more power comes more friction with national governments, but um, things are getting done better for residents and residents are more likely than to show up in municipal governments, either at election time or otherwise, because that relationship, that connective tissue is built to work together to solve these problems. I can't think of a better place at which to end than that, because that, that was pretty hopeful in a way. I think. <laughs> I think so. I'll leave you with my favorite quote about hope, because I Please. think this is another thing that we, um, you know, we don't, we don't, yeah, popular culture tells us that hope is a binary experience. You either have hope or you have despair. Um, hope is actually not the absence of despair. It's the presence of purpose. So you can both despair for what's happening in the world um, and still have hope because you're propelled by purpose. And I think this huge mass of people out there, um, the, the younger folks, um, people your age, my age, people older than us, um, who are who are working so hard to affect change in their communities at whatever level on whatever issue, it's that purpose that creates the hope, not the lack of reasons for despair. Well, now that is a great point on which to end. That is even... I might just recycle that for every episode. We might just end on that <laughs> point for, for every episode because I think it's a great message. Well, that does bring us to time though. Thank you very much for joining me here today. This was fantastic. 
Yeah, great to join you, David. And hopefully we'll we'll get to see each other live IRL in one of these days. I would love to. I I have got to constantly talk myself out of moving back to Vancouver. Um, I, I almost I almost impulse moved my way back in the middle of the pandemic, but that's that's a story for another day. Well, so my thanks once more to you. And as always, my thanks to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jarrah, who make the show not just possible, but infinitely better than it would be without them. And my thanks to all of you, whatever municipality you may be living in while listening to this. Cities matter, folks. This is the pressure point. Call your MPPs, call your MPs, call your premiers, call your prime minister. We need more love, more power, more money for cities. All right, that brings us to the end. Thanks again. We'll see you back here in two weeks. Mm -hmm.